Alright folks, this one is gonna be interesting because, well, first of all, I'm not the only one who thought of this, it's good to know, because this one's called Muhammad and Genghis Khan Compared, the Religious Factor in World Empire Building, Cambridge University Press, uh, 93, alright. So while I was doing my research, I just, I also kind of noticed some similarities between Genghis Khan and Prophet Muhammad. And I'm not trying to disrespect anybody. I'm just sharing what I'm finding and uh, looking at it from, trying to look at it from different perspectives. That's all. Okay. Muhammad and Genghis Khan compared the religious factor in world empire building. Anatoly M. Kazanov, University of Wisconsin-Madison. Okay. This essay compares the two greatest conquest movements of pre-modern times, the Arab and the Mongol, which resulted in the creation of world empires and analyzes the importance of religion in these events. This attempt is hardly in the mainstream of cult current cultural cultural anthropology which does not encourage much comparative study of historical societies separated in time and space nonetheless perhaps this comparison will facilitate a better understanding of some serious conceptual problems that both of these conquests pose for anthropologists and historians the fact that the Arab society had a strong nomadic component and the Mongol society was firmly based on pastoral nomadism, nomadism makes this comparison even more interesting. The preconditions of these conquests bear some remarkable similarities. The internal situation in Arabia in the second half of the 6th and in the beginning of the 7th centuries was very complicated. At that time, Arabian society was under stress then. After all, new religions do not emerge in times of tranquility and prosperity. Isn't that interesting? So, in discussing the origin of Islam, one should take into, into account conditions in the whole peninsula. For this reason alone, it is difficult to agree with Aswad that the emergence of the Islamic State in Arabia resulted from a struggle between the nomadic and the sedentary people in the Medina Oasis. The emergence of a state capable of uniting Arabia was definitely not a response limited to a local situation in Mecca and Medina. Even less convincing are the arguments of Ibrahim, who, apparently under the influence of vulgar Marxism, links the rise of Islam and Islam and the Islamic State with the emergence of a mercantile society in Mecca and views the Arab expansion as the means by which merchants consolidated their political ascendancy. The old thesis of Kitani that Arabia was suffering from a gradual process of desiccation has been disputed by many scholars. However, Butzer has demonstrated that between AD 591 and 640, a severe drought in the peninsula worsened the economy there and particularly affected its nomadic population. Huh. Wonder why they had a drought. Was it a volcano? Earlier in the sixth century, I mean, it is because that's at least why Genghis Khan apparently. Um, well, actually, I, have to, I might have to check on that. But apparently, it was linked with climate change. The reason for Genghis Khan to start his thingy, apparently, is what I heard. Okay. Um, Early in the 6th century, the strength of the Byzantine Empire and Iran, along with their buffer states, the Ghassanids and Lakhmids, prevented for a time the free movement of nomads to the north, who 
who were hampered in their migrations to the south by those occupying South Arabia, whether various indigenous states, Abyssinians, or about 570 Persians, or 570 Persians, okay. Much has been written about the deterioration of trade and luxury items as an important factor contributing to the crisis in Arabia. This hypothesis was recently challenged by Crone in 1987. However, the collapse of the kingdom of Kinda, I'm assuming Kinda, and a general disorganization of economy and trade in the Mediterranean and in the Middle East by the beginning of the 7th century AD should have in any case negatively affected the Arabian society. Much has been written about the okay by the beginning of the 7th century AD Arabia may have indeed faced a certain amount of overpopulation while possibilities for immobilizing the Bedouin inside the peninsula were too limited, particularly with the decline of agriculture in South Arabia. Whether this decline along with some other factors had caused a nomadization of some of the Arabian population still remains unclear. But there are various reasons to suspect that in the first half of the first millennium AD, the balance between the desert and the sown in Arabia was disturbed. Yeah, Cain and Abel, city versus nomad. Under such circumstances, so the cities were basically the places where the merchants would come and sell their goods. One moves, one stays. It's like, it's like tourism. It's like eco-tourism nowadays. It's the same thing. Okay. Under such circumstances, conquests and consequent migrations were a traditional solution of the problem, particularly since an external situation in the beginning of the 7th century had become more favorable to the Arabs. Although a kind of political vacuum made itself felt in Arabia, the growing weakness of the great powers in the north was becoming increasingly apparent. The Byzantine and Persian empires had been at war for many years and had virtually exhausted each other. As a consequence, the buffer Arab states ceased to exist or to enjoy their material support similar to the Ghassanids. Besides, Byzantine was weakened by the strife between different eastern Christian churches and Iran suffered greatly from a growing internal disintegration. All this opened new possibilities to the Arabs. However, these possibilities had yet to be explored and exploited in the best possible way. The situation in Mongolia at the beginning of the 8th century was in many respects similar. <clears throat> Apparently, the balance between the availability of natural resources, the size of herds, and the human population in Mongolia was greatly disturbed. At the beginning of the 8th century, the number of Mongols exceeded their number at the beginning of this century. While the Mongol society faced a problem of overpopulation from the 10th to 14th centuries, the climate, deter the climate deteriorated. deteriorated. <laughs> Fucking can't talk. Alright. It was no wonder that the Mongols were very interested in obtaining not only agricultural products but even stock from the neighboring sedentary societies. But the prospects were rather limited. The transcontinental trade on the ancient Great Silk Road was at that time in decay and Mongol relations with China were far from friendly. During the 12th century, the Qin considered the Mongols their tributaries and repeatedly raided them. The weakness of the sedentary states became evident only during the Genghis Khan's campaigns after the Mongols had united. In the previous period, the Mongols had fought each other. The 12th century was a period of fierce struggle not only among, but also within separate tribal units and 
among various tribes, sub-tribes, and even clans. Mongol society was clearly under stress. In their initial stages, both the Arabian and the Mongolian conquest movements were aimed at overcoming initial societal crises at a time when an external political situation favored expansion. That comparison can be extended even further. In both cases, the internal crises were ecological, economic, apparently social, but in no way spiritual as far as the nomads were concerned. Both societies were acquainted with various world and regional religions. The Arabs were familiar with Christianity, Judaism, and, and Zoroastrianism, and the Mongols with Christianity, Islam, Buddhism, Manichaeism, and Chinese religions. This is what I was saying. I was like, when, when did... Anyways, I was like, when did... Islam get founded, let's say, officially, and when did, um, you know, the Mongols, let's say, rule end in the, in the, in the Middle East, you know, well, we'll see, I guess, um, but this circumstance hardly contributed much to their mundane conflicts, perhaps a certain tension between transcendental and mundane orders, to use a terminology of the axial age concept, could be felt in sedentary parts of pre-Islamic Arabia, but not in Mongolia. The rare and episodic conflicts between the rulers and the experts in the supernatural in the Eurasian steppes lacked any ideological background and did not exceed the limits of personal rival rivalry. At last but not least, in both the Arabian and Mongolian cases, internal crises were solved similarly by successful conquest, expansion, and world empire building. The similarities end there, and significant differences between the two cases become evident. Among other things, there they are quite conspicuous in the religious history of the two empires. Since the religious history of the caliphate described in detail in numerous publications is well known, I will dwell more on the ideological foundations of the Mongol Empire and on its religious history. While Muhammad borrowed from existing world religions to create a new one, Genghis Khan neglected them entirely. The Arabs initiated their conquest under the banner of Islam to exalt the word of God. This united brothers, this united brothers in faith. Genghis Khan did not suggest and did not think that he needed any universal message to mankind in order to support and to legitimize his claims. Although he apparently held a sincere belief in his own charisma and in the patronage of eternal heaven, which were virtually the same. This confidence was shared by many other Mongols. Together heaven and earth have agreed, Temujin shall be lord of the land, claimed his supporters. Okay, Saunders made an attempt, hardly very convincing, to prove that the Mongol conquests were similar to the Arab ones in ideological respects, that Genghis Khan was, if not a prophet, then a spokesman of heaven, and that his yasa, the collection of rules and orders that he left his successors, could be compared with the Quran. In all probability, the main theme of the Yasa was the necessity to maintain the unity of the royal clan and of the Mongol Empire under the sway of a single ruler. The Yasa also emphasized military discipline. That was all, or almost all. It is even more difficult to agree with Saunders that the Mongols were motivated in their conquests by a strong religious drive to unify mankind and to establish the reign of peace and justice throughout the world. Peace and order in no way their goal could be at best a byproduct of world subjugation. A concept of heaven connected with a concept of sacred kinship had existed in the Eur Eurasian steppes long before Genghis Khan. 
the heaven, the heaven above, the eternal heaven, which protected Genghis Khan and bestowed upon him the power to rule over the world is in fact Tengri, the supreme but non-anthropomorphous and not clearly personified celestial god of the Turkic and the Mongol nomads. There you go, the Turkic again. Man. What is it with this supreme deity could be approached directly without any priestly intervention and charismatic leaders were in direct contact with the divine forces. There is an opinion that a concept of heaven-sanctioned kingship as it existed among the Orkhon Turks and the Mongols of the 13th century had been borrowed from sedentary peoples and was strongly influenced by Chinese conceptions of the Son of Heaven and the Mandate of Heaven. However, a similar concept had already existed among the Scythians and probably their ancient Iranian-speaking nomads. This suggests, this suggests that the sources of supposed influence could vary. After all, a concept of sacred kinship was widespread in many societies other than China. Nor should one dismiss the possibility that the concept could originate independently in the Eurasian nomadic societies, particularly in the initial periods of their state building and corresponding confrontation with sedentary societies. On the other hand, during the period of the single Mongol Empire, the concept of universal kingship sanctioned by heaven apparently underwent some development. In previous nomadic states, heaven first sanctioned the Gaghan's power over their own people, and the Mongol Empire gave them power over the whole world. Some scholars are trying to trace similar ideas already in the period of the Orkhon Turkic Kaganets, and even in the Siangnu period. However, at that time they existed only in embryonic form, if at all. The Turkic Kagans, and apparently their Siungnu predecessors propagated an idea of the celestial origin of their power, their heavenly sanctioned rule or heavenly sanctioned right to rule their own people and their realm, but a belief in the mandate of heaven to rule the whole world never appears explicitly in their claims, although the Turkic Kagans often mentioned that they had subjugated all the peoples living in the four quarters of the world. They had in mind only the nomads of the Eurasian steppes, and in this case preferred to stress their own merits. Genghis Khan was quite possibly not only a political innovator, but to some extent a religious innovator as well. During his reign and the reign of his immediate successors, the concept of the heavenly div of the heavenly divinity, so characteristic of the religions of the Altaic-speaking nomads and of the Altaic peoples in general, general, was elaborated as a result of their political achievements and the encounter with different religions of the sedentary peoples, both the monotheistic religions such as Christianity and Islam and the religions of China. Heaven began to be conceived not only as a supreme sky deity, but also as the omnipotent God who had an absolute power over human beings and who entrusted Genghis Khan and his successors with the divine mission to rule over the countries and the peoples. By the power of eternal heaven was a standard introductory formula of the Mongol chancelleries in the 13th and even in the 14th centuries. The concept of heaven as the highest omnipotent divinity might facilitate a kind of religious syncretism, since Tengri could then be merged with the supreme being of any universalistic religion. This may explain Plano Carpini's claim. They, the Mongols, believe in one God, and they believe that he is the maker of all things visible and invisible, and that it is he who is the giver of good things of this world as well as the hardships. Perhaps this development was reflected by Genghis Khan's grandson, Monke, Monke 
in his conversion with Rubruk that we Mongols believe that there is but one God who, by whom we die and towards him we have an upright heart. The meager sources at our disposal are insufficient to allow a definite conclusion. The Mongols' trends toward monotheism could reflect not so much their own religious evolution, but a desire of their observers who professed different monotheistic religions. After all, Rubruk was a very keen, though biased, observer. On the other hand, the Mongol rulers themselves sometimes might have wished to express their ideas of world domination in language acceptable to those whom they addressed. Thus, Hulagu claimed in his letter of 1262 to Louis the... What's 1x? that 11? Or is that 6? Anyways, God had in these last days spoken to our grandfather Genghis Khan, announcing, I alone am God Almighty in the highest, and have set thee over the nations and the kingdoms to be made ruler and king of the entire earth to root out and pull down to throw down and to destroy to build and to plant from such evidence one may get the impression that the mongol religion confronted during the period of great khans with various world religions underwent some changes in its dogmatic aspect Although parallels with the origin of Islam inevitably come to mind, the differences are conspicuous. The religion of Genghis Khan lacked any universal moral and ethical appeal. An impersonal supreme divinity represented by the eternal heaven, even in its developing function as an omnipotent god, was neither the god-creator nor even less the supreme judge of the world to whom man is accountable for his actions. This religious did not this religious did not promise subjugated people Masumi said this religion did not promise subjugated people anything more than a legitimation of their subjugation. <laughs> it might inspire the Mongols, but not those whose lot was only to obey the Mongols. If Genghis Khan were a religious innovator, unlike Muhammad, he definitely was not a religious reformer and prophet. It is not surprising, then, that even his very limited innovations did not affect Mongol folk beliefs and received no perpetuation. The history of Islam was quite different. Even if those who think that originally the Quran was, addre was addressed only to the Arabs are right. It contained a universal message to the whole of mankind and therefore from the outset had a potential for an eventual integration of the victors with the defeated. It had or developed a concept of Uma, a supra-tribal and supra-ethnic community of believers from which no one could be excluded for ethnic or social reasons and into which people are incorporated on the basis of their religious affiliation. Notwithstanding the desire of the Arab conquerors to consider Islam as their national creed and a justification of their privileges and notwithstanding the attitude of the first caliphs such as Umar and later the Umayyads who strived to maintain the social superiority of the Arabs over the subjugated population, an empire built on implied religious universalism was ill-suited to maintain the principle of a single ethnic group dominating the apex of a social pyramid. Its divorce from Arab ethnocentrism was inevitable. The basis of Mongol religion was made religion made this impossible. The Mongol the Mongols never claimed that they possessed the ultimate truth which excludes which excluded all others. Acquaintance with various world world religions prompted the Arabs by contrast 
to deny them all while the Mongols recognized them as the bearers of God's truth in their own way, hence their different attitude and policy towards other religions. And this is beautiful, I think. It shows both sides. Um, the Mongols never considered the various religions as ideological rivals or competitors with their own ethnic faith. They were quite open to the truths of others on the condition that the latter did not challenge their political domination. Yeah, they understood there's a difference between church and state. <laughs> okay. As soon as the Mongols became aware of the political necessity to integrate with subjected societies, only one option was open to them, to adapt to the religions of the defeated. Okay, as soon as the Mongols became aware of the political necessity to integrate, okay, I see. These religions were varied and thus contributed to the disintegration not of the Mongol Empire as such, since it had been already fragmented, but of the Mongol Commonwealth. Commonwealth, The religious history of the Mongol Empire and of the various states that emerged after its disintegration serves as an, as an indication of the extent to which the nomads' conversion to world religions, as well as their choice of a specific world religion, depended on political factors. During the period of the single empire, while the conquest continued and sometimes even later, the Mongols officially adhered to their old religion, albeit already with some deviations and modifications. Adherence to the old Mongol religion at that time reflected, among other things, the continuing policy of conquest and therefore the general policy of confrontation with sedentary countries and their populations, as well as the desire to maintain the unity of Genghis Khan's clan and of the empire in general. All the first four great Khans of the Mongol Empire remained pagan. The sympathies and preferences that individual Genghis, Genghisids, Genghisids displayed towards different world religions were of a strictly personal character. The general Mongol policy towards the conquered countries was hardly influenced to any, st any strong degree by their personal feelings. Some Genghisids gave the impression that they played with religious competition among their new subjects and skillfully demonstrated their religious impartiality if they considered it expedient. To do so was not particularly difficult because in the age of the Mongols, as in all others, there were those who wished to be deluded. Thus, the great Khan Monk, Monke, was regarded by followers of each of the world religions as one of their number. According to Armenian sources, he was baptized. Juzjani reported that on his ascension to power he had recited the Muslim profession of faith while the Buddhists claimed that he recognized the supremacy of Buddhism over all other religions, of course. Rubruck understood the situation better than many others when he remarked they all follow his court like flies honey and he gives to them all and they think they enjoy special favor, and they all prophesy good fortune for him. <laughs> Works for him, bad shit. The general Mongol attitude towards different world religions in the conquered countries was characterized by political and spiritual pragmatism. Thus, when Genghis Khan confirmed special privileges on the Buddhists, and later on the Taoists, even... Okay, th these actions played well with his political goals. Genghis Khan hoped that the Chinese clergy would win the Chinese common people for him and bring him more subjects, and he directly demanded corresponding actions from them. Even when the Mongols did not use a religion as a mere instrument of political power, their spiritual curiosity lacked any interest in doctrinal problems and controversies. 
They just took for granted an idea of metaphysical equivalence of different deities and cults. The Mongol rulers expected positive results on their behalf from divination, prayers for their health and good fortune, magical practices, astrology, and so forth. From the supernatural forces represented by different world religions and their agents at their court, just as they expected advantages from their tolerance with respect to different clergies. The first question that Genghis Khan asked the holy Taoist monk Chang Chun was, Have you brought any medicine to prolong my life? The Mongol subjects were free to meditate on metaphysical problems and to worship their gods and deities in their own way. What the Mongol rulers would not tolerate were any claims to spiritual supremacy over the whole world, which they considered as contradicting their own claims to universal sovereignty and the right to rule over the whole world confirmed conferred by heaven on Genghis Khan and his descendants. Of course. <laughs> the Baghdad Caliphate was destroyed in 1258, not because the Mongols were anti-Muslim, but because they did not tolerate any political competitors. Otherwise, freedom from conscience, to use a modern term, was restricted only in cases considered dangerous to Mongol political supremacy or a challenge to their own religious practice. Thus, the Mongols often compelled the Russian princes to undergo a ritual of purification by fire before the Khan's headquarters, and the princes sometimes preferred martyrdom to complying with this request. Jeez. This reflected not so much a contest between different religions, but rather a political confrontation transferred into the religious sphere. I see. The Russian princes were forced to recognize their subjugated religious status just as they had recognized their subjugated political position. Perhaps Genghis Khan's rule that the Muslims should follow the Mongol ritual of slaughtering animals was influenced by similar considerations. At any rate, his son Chagatai conceived of it in, his, in this way. The situation changed after the end of conquest and the disintegration of the empire. Despite some differences, the religious policy of the Mongol states in East Europe, Central Asia, Iran and even China exhibited the same basic trend of moving from tolerance to an accommodation with the religions of the majority of the sedimentary population. Mm, let's see. Okay, so the damn it, yes. Yeah, I did. Okay, so where was I? Okay, perhaps Genghis Khan's rule that the Muslims should follow the Mongol ritual of slaughtering animals. Okay, the situation changed after the end of conquests and the disintegration of the empire. Despite some differences, okay, I read this. It is impossible to create an, an empire on horseback, but, is, but it is impossible to rule it from that position. This old wisdom told to the great Khan... Ogade, a son and successor of Genghis Khan by his Chinese advisor and repeated by Liu Pingcheng, a Chinese statesman at the court of Kubilei, was a historical lesson that the nomadic rulers of sedentary societies were taught time and again by their political experience. As the empire disintegrated into separate states, the rulers of these states had to dismount from the horse, if not literally, then in a, in a metaphorical sense. 
That is, they had to reach agreement on a kind of modus vivendi with the subjugated sedentary population. Among other things, they discovered that just tolerating the faith and practices of the subject peoples was not enough. A new historical situation demanded from the nomadic rulers a kind of ideological rapprochement with the sedentary ma majority in their states and propel them to convert to the religions of the conquered. It was. It is difficult to doubt that Muhammad sincerely believed that he had received a genuine revelation from God. More interesting is why others shared this belief or belief or followed a new prophet. In her challenging book, Crone came to the to a conclusion that the origin of Islam was not connected with any spiritual crisis in Arabia, but rather with a program of Arab state formation and conquest suggested by Muhammad, which is exactly what I had suspected. In this case, Islam definitely falls into the category of the religions of confrontation. Although a call for conquest alone without a new religion was insufficient to unite the Arabs. In the long run, Islam did not have a chance of becoming victorious in Arabia without successful conquests. Muhammad apparently understood this, hence his probes in the direction of Syria. His immediate successors understood it very well indeed, but it would hardly be correct to consider Islam as a single man's creation. Not only did Muhammad borrow and use concepts of the other monotheistic religions, but also his preaching corresponded to a certain ideological climate in Arabia at the beginning of the 7th century. It is true that new religions do not spring fully fledged from the heads of prophets, but they also rarely spring at all because either, either because a society lacks prophets or because there is no prophet in his own land. Apparently a kind of spiritual crisis or a religious vacuum, to use Watts' phrase, should not be rejected out of hand for the sedentary parts of, of Arabia. That, that other prophets besides Muhammad were preaching there is worth noting. Some of them were his contemporaries. Others possibly had preached even before him, at any rate with no connection to Muhammad's message. A difference with the Mongols in this respect is quite obvious. While in the times of Muhammad, the old Arab religion was in decay and new monotheistic concepts spread somewhat. Uh, sp spread somewhat in Temuchin's Mongolia, the traditional folk religion was still intact and held a monopoly over the souls and minds of the nomads. Although Muhammad aspired to overcome political and social and also religious disunity of Arabian society, there was no need for prophets in Mongolia because there was no religious disunity there. No wonder that the Mongols never created a world religion themselves nor strove to spread or to impose their own indigenous religion upon others as a means or a symbol of confrontation. Patricia Crone says Muhammad had to conquer his followers like he liked to conquer, and his deity told him to conquer. Do we need any more? Yes, we still do. The first question was put by Crone herself. Why did the Arabs become capable of uniting for conquest only in the 7th century? Lawrence of Arabia, seven pillars of wisdom. Hmm. After all, migrations from Arabia had taken place many times in pre-Islamic history. However, only Islam provided the... I'm just kidding. I don't know what that... I, I have no idea. I'm just... I'm just reading, okay? However, only Islam provided the Arabs with a central power, an essential unity, and an ideology that in favorable, favorable international conditions could turn... Perennial migrations and small-scale conquests into a mighty and victorious movement. With Islam, the Arab conquest from the beginning took the form of a religious crusade. I would also like to pose another question. Why did the nomads of the Eurasian steppes not need a new religion to achieve unity for conquest? And like the Mongols, 
under Genghis Khan often were quite satisfied with what they had with their indigenous religions. The same question from the other side of the coin asks why was the creation of a new religion Islam a necessary precondition for the unification of Arabia? The answer apparently is that Arabian society while politically fragmented like Mongol society before Genghis Khan's ascension to power was much more heterogeneous than the societies of the Eurasian nomads. One may even doubt that the Arabs represented anything like a single society. At best, their society can be characterized as a centrifugal and decentralized one with diffused power and conflicting local interests. A moral element had to be introduced to unite the Arabs, and the new religion became a substitute for a real social and political integration that never took place in the Islamic State. In addition to other reasons, early Islam had to have infidels to help provide a means of integration. Alright. Where are we at? Okay. The... Let me take Alright, the Bedouin were less stratified than the Mongol nomads in the sparsely inhabited and uniformly impoverished desert social stratification remained trivial incapable of uniting into a single polity the Bedouin were even less able to initiate the unification of sedentary and nomadic components of Arabian society Islam provided the necessary cohesiveness and facilitated incorporation of the Bedouin into a supra-tribal unity. Muhammad overcame decisive tribal loyalties by developing a new concept of political identity and by creating a much higher and holier loyalty to his creed. Several scholars have already pointed out that the original Islam was not only a new ideology, but also a leverage for socio-political integration. Islam provided Arabian society not only with the concept of God as creator, ruler, and judge of the world, but also with the larger moral community of the faithful that assumed a higher authority over rival kinship-based and bounded groups. No wonder that in the original Islam, supreme political and religious authorities were fused. No wonder that in the original Islam, okay, Abu Bakr was proclaimed the successor to the apostle to God, and at that, and at the same time, the commander of the faithful. Genghis Khan, who faced similar problems, solved them in a different way. He destroyed the upper segments of the Mongol tribal organization, physically exterminated a significant part of the traditional nomadic aristocracy, and channeled the Mongols' loyalty to himself and to his royal clan. Yep, it's, uh, it's the godfather. The religious histories of the Arab and the Mongol empires were completely different from the outset. Some of these differences can be connected with conspicuous differences between Arab society of the early 7th century and Mongol society of the early 13th century. The ratio of sedentary and nomadic populations in Arabia is not clear. But sedentary people there were quite numerous. The Mongols were pure pastoral nomads. In Arabia, the Bedouin and the sedentary people were linked to each other within a framework of a single linguistic and cultural idiom. Institutions like the Hums or the Haram, the sacred enclave sanctuary areas, cults like the Kaaba, and alliances like the Hilf fulfilled certain integrative functions for both segments of Arabian society. The Mongol nomads opposed the sedentary people in every way, linguistically, culturally, ethnically, religiously, politically, as the latter lived only outside Mongolia. 
in Arabia, both components of the society, nomadic and sedentary, were tribal. In Mongolia, only one nomadic component was present. It was also tribal, but neighboring sedentary societies were not. In Arabia, different elites coexisted, though not all of them demonstrated a high level of congruity. And there were different foci of power, foci, foca. In addition to a nomadic aristocracy, aristocracy and to a merchant and final elite in Mecca and Taif, there was a kind of religious aristocracy, aristocracy, <laughs> separate and sufficiently independent from the nomadic aristocracy, though sometimes connected with it by some common interests. In Mongolia, there was only one but congruent elite. Experts in the supernatural there operated strictly within this homogeneous tribal nomadic society and in no way contributed to its unity. These initial differences led to quite different results. Islam rearranged the previously existing social order and intergroup relations first in Arabia and then in the conquered countries. The Arabs created an empire based on the new militant religion and on their declared goal of spreading this religion. Although the early Islamic leadership consisted of the sedentary people of the Hejaz and the Umayyad Caliphate was, in Wellhausen's words, Das Arabisch Reich. In theory, any Muslim was superior in, sa in status to any non-Muslim, and all Muslims should be equal. This eventually permitted elevating the status of the second-class non-Arab Muslims. After its de-Arabization, Islam facilitated the creation of multi-ethnic elites from among Arabs, Iranians, and a little later Turks. For a time, these elites were interested in the perpetuation of the Caliphate, and even more so and much longer of the Muslim Commonwealth. From the 10th century, the Bayids, Ghaznavids, Saljuks, Ibids, and Mamluks nominally recognized the supremacy of the caliphate, which provided a religious legitimacy to their own power. A caliph remained a symbolic leader of the Ummah. The Mongols also built an empire, but its only declared goal was to bring the world under the sway of the golden clan of Genghis Khan. Only in the process of empire building did they discover the importance of the religious factor. Hmm... Wait, what? I need a monomyth to control, not control, but to to mm, guide, direct the people in a certain direction? Yeah, that's what religion is. <laughs> However, the Mongols always preferred to rule alone and an ethnic criterion based on tribal and clan affiliations and loyalties continued to play an important role in recruiting members of the ruling elite. Although the new ruling elite was inter-tribal and to some extent even inter-ethnic, as it included some Turkic elements, for a long time it remained dominated by the Mongols and therefore rather homogeneous. While the Arab state eventually developed into the multi-ethnic Islamic state, in all Mongol states, including Yuan China, ethnic affiliation remained the most important criterion of social advancement. No wonder the alien sedentaries who assisted the Mongols in their rule did not care much about perpetuating the empire. Their loyalties, primarily of a personal character, were to certain Genghizid rulers, or to certain lineages of the royal clan, yet also to their native countries. Many of these sedentaries were rather interested in the disintegration of the empire. The Arabs had spread Islam by, by various means, including force, but ultimately the embrace of Islam became the most important inter-integrative factor. I mean, I will also say that Catholics forced Catholicism on the whole world and 
colonized it, so let's not forget that. And they're still around. And they're still doing it. <laughs> In a different way, but they're still doing it. In religious respects, the Mongols had nothing to offer their subjects, nor did they ever seek to impose upon them their indigenous religious beliefs, which in any case were of an ethnic type and lacked any universal appeal. I mean, I doubt that because it was very shamanistic, so kind of fucked down. Islam exerted some general trends towards sudden terrorization. In the emerged Arab state, the leadership was urban, while nomads occupied a subordinate position. Muhammad disliked the Bedouin and was hostile to the nomadic way of life. At first, he even required those who had embraced Islam to become sedentary and preached that the nomadic way of life was incompatible with the new religion. This demand proved to be unrealistic and was soon abandoned, but Muhammad and his successors continued to view nomads with suspicion, regarding them, regarding them as second-rate subjects and as a potential danger to the state. Yeah, of course. The state is what you must protect now. <laughs> the walled garden. Okay. And the best way to take one of those down is just to starve them <laughs> so it's just okay the Rita also demonstrated that the Bedouin could not be controlled by persuasion or by force alone but required special incentives for their participation in the Arab state particularly because the Pax Islamica established in Arabia denied the Bedouin their centuries old tradition of raiding and warfare inside the peninsula <laughs> well, yeah, um, yeah, I agree. It's it's well, I don't know. It's it's if your whole life depends on you raiding and pillaging and stealing, then maybe you need to yeah change. Well, yeah, it's <laughs> oh my god, it's like well, animals kind of do that. <laughs> It's just it's this, this is what I say. Like when it comes to private property, is when we all hit the when the when the shit hits the fan. <laughs> the moment it comes down to private property, boom, all oh shit. It's like okay. Anyways, in the initial stage of the Arab conquest, their troops apparently consisted mainly mainly of settled people from Hijaz. Still, merit, still, military success would scarcely have been possible without mobile camel-mounted troops recruited from the Bedouin. Recruited from the Bedouin early on, the Caliph Umar, who considered the Bedouin to be as fuel for Islam, raised troops from the former nomadic rebels, and the latter actively participated in the conquest of Iraq. Recent, recently, Donner raised again the importance of sincere belief in the rise of the Islamic State and its subsequent conquest. It is difficult to agree or to disagree with this. It does not take a postmodernist to know how difficult it is to read the minds and souls of our contemporary fellows, no less those of the people who belong to different times and cultures. It is impossible to assess... Well, if it's impossible, what are we doing right now? To assess exactly the role of purely religious motivation in the Arab conquest. Um, I think it was about oil. I think we all know exactly what it was about. It was about oil. Alright. However, significantly enough, the first caliphs understood quite well that religious persuasion and bright prospects in the afterworld were not enough to guarantee Bedouin loyalty. Their policy was to strengthen in strengthen it with material rewards in this world in the form of booty, payments, and other grants, including land for settlement and exploitation, attraction of state service, and so forth. The government encouraged the Bedouin to migrate to settle in the conquered countries, which they did, which they did in significant numbers. In the Mongol Empire and in all the consequent Genghisid states, 
the nomads always Genghis is okay the nomads always occupy dominating positions many also migrate if you play Diablo act Diablo Diablo what two three Lord of Destruction there they have the remastered one now but if you play that game if you played that game what was it act two I think yeah act two was in like in like uh, this whole Middle Eastern landscape and it's kind of gives you an idea I guess that the merchants or the yeah the nomads always occupy a dominating position okay many also migrated to the conquered countries but they did not become sedentary there nor were they encouraged to do so by the Mongol ruling elite in the Islamic State the tribesmen from Arabia was were soon replaced as a major military force, first by Syrian tribesmen, then by soldiers recruited from the sedentary population of Khorasan, and eventually by Turks. Beginning in the 9th century, a distinctive feature of the Abbasid Caliphate and of many subsequent Islamic states was the divorce of the military elite from the rest of society. As a result, the Bedouin lost their military importance. By contrast, in all Genghisid states, uh, and even in many of their successors, like the Timurid state, the military elite always consisted of the nomads and was always closely connected with the rulers by ethnic and tribal ties. The Arabs initiated the emergence of a new civilization. The Mongol nomads did not and never could. The Mongol example only confirms that a nomadic society is incapable of creating a new civilization or a world religion. I wouldn't go that far, but okay. Uh, it is remarkable how little in comparison with the Arab, the Mongol conquest changed the religious map, much less the political and ethnic maps of the world. Only temporarily did the Mongols unite different already existing civilizations by a Pax Mongolica. Yeah, it was like the Mongols basically brought everyone together and said, okay, you guys all have to get along. <laughs> In conclusion, I would like to stress that the nomads never created any world and universal religion, but depended upon the sedentary societies ideologically and culturally, as well as in economic and political respects. Yeah, I mean shamanism. It doesn't. It's it works with any any type of religion, really. The economic dependence of the nomads on sedentary societies and the different ways of political adaptation to them carried corresponding ideological implications. As the nomadic economy had to be supplemented with agriculture and crafts, so too the, did the nomadic culture need sedentary culture as a source. A component and a model for comparison imitation or rejection especially at those times when politics were connected with ideologies including religious including religious ones sounds like sounds like right now <laughs> I mean it's always kind of sound like that. okay the famous dictum of Ernest Renan Le desert est monotheist is hardly true and the theoretical premise and the empirical support of all the old ideas about the primordial monotheism of camel herding nomads seem crownless. One may agree with Watt that the desert played no creative part in the development of Muhammad's monotheism. Incidentally, the same is true with respect to ancient Judaism, to use Max Weber's term, an opinion shared now by the scholars who in other respects held quite a different opinion on the origin of Israelite monotheism. That was back in 1952 they were thinking this shit. The nomads lacked two main prerequisites for the emergence of universal religions. Ideologically, they're societies were characterized by a low level of tension between the transcendental and mundane orders in social respects 
they were too homogenous, too congruent, and the level of internal conflicts and their perception in nomadic societies were too weak to create an appropriate ideological and psychological climate. The nomads could only borrow and spread the religions created by others, doing so mainly for political reasons. What the fuck are you talking about? That is exactly what Christianity also is. It's a complete plagiarism. <laughs> Finally, it's just that Christianity had the better writers who lived in the cities to put together a universal story because they had already got all the stories from everywhere else. So now they could just put a universal monomyth, like Mr. Joseph Campbell said, to satisfy all their sheep who are in all their different cities all over the world under one god and you know that's how the story works that was religion was the internet of the back in the day because that was a story everyone knew everyone heard that was the facebook that was religion now we have the internet <laughs> okay where was I? Sorry. Finally, let us recognize that the many various definitions of religion often reflect not so much the differences in their authors' ontological and epistemolo epist epistemological speculations as their allegiances to various persuasions of anthropology and sociology and occasionally their personal inclinations and attitudes. It will not involve myself, I will not involve myself in these discussions, which to a large extent are fruitless. I did not intend in this article to address religion as a system of beliefs, symbols, cults, rituals, practices, superstitions, and so forth, nor address religion as a basic understanding of the world and a general order of human existence and meaning. The main goal was to re-examine the thesis that religion, together with other natural, social, and cultural forces, molds the social and political order, while it is simultaneously formed by that very order. That is why the phenomenon of religion does not exist and never has exist existed in a pure form. Okay, I see what they mean. It has always... well... Mm, Outside of cities, I would say when it was the shamanic, animistic type religions, I would say that was more for its purer form. Okay, it has always combined. I guess not though, because that's also kind of like pleasing the spirits for a good hunt or harvest. So, I mean... <laughs> Whatever, it has always combined psychological and economic, social and political, ideological and cultural factors. Yet, above all, religion is an historical phenomenon because it always exists within a definite, definite historical time and space. Well, I mean, I think religion, all the stuff, if you just look at it as a story, the story language is Maya. Maya is the glue that, you know, is the is the show we are all in is the glue that holds us all together language stories it's it's uh it's uh i don't know i don't know what to it is experiencing nature the world whatever reality and then trying to share that with another person or whatever not shared understand whatever is what you can call religion i mean really really religion is from religio right religion root is from to bind right religio yeah was originally used to mean only reverence for god no that's not what i'm looking for religion state of life bound by monastic laws what's the origin the origin latin religionem 
well, re legionem, religion, re legion, legion, hmm, re legion, interesting, legion. Alright, anyways. Basically, to bind fast. Yeah, religare. That's what I was looking for. Religare, to bind. A place via the notion of place an obligation on, or bond between humans and gods. In that case, the, the RE would be intensive. Anyways, re legion. And then didn't Jesus say something with legion? Hold up, man. What is what is going on here? Because legion is legit spelled. If you added a R E in front of it, it would it was it would legit be religion. Wait, how do you spell? No. Re. Okay, no, legion is L-I-G-O-N. But still, <laughs> legion means over here, legion is a demon or a group of demons, particularly those in two or three versions of the, hmm, re-legion. Alright, anyways, I'm out. Peace.